today, the second part in our discussion of Headley Ball's international theory, The Case for a Classical Approach. I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you're listening to The Pollitt Podcast. However, the scientific approach has contributed and is likely to contribute very little to the theory of international relations. And insofar as it is intended to encroach upon and ultimately displace the classical approach, it is positively harmful. This is where we finished up at the end of the last episode, where we looked at the first half of Headley Bull's seminal essay, International Theory, The Case for a Classical Approach. What we're going to do today is finish off our analysis looking at the seven propositions Bull discusses to support that conclusion that you just heard. Okay, let's roll. Bull's seven propositions. One, by confining themselves to only what can be logically or mathematically proved by strict procedures of calculation and empiricism, the practitioners of the scientific approach deny themselves the instruments to fully grasp the substance of international politics. So the proponents of the scientific approach attempt to abstain from what Morton Kaplan referred to as intuitive guesses, and hence seek to contain themselves to a form of intellectual puritanism. This keeps them somewhat remote from what Bull pens to be the very substance of international politics, as remote to their subject, quote, as the inmates of a Victorian nunnery were from the study of sex, end quote. A reliance on the capacity of judgment in international politics can be appreciated by simply recalling a handful of the central questions to which theory addresses. Some of these are in part moral questions, which cannot be given thus any form of simple objective answer, but only assessed and discussed from some arbitrary standpoint. Other questions are without doubt empirical questions. Nonetheless, in providing hypotheses to these questions, the scientific approach must still undertake a process of framing these questions and hypotheses, which still requires a certain dependence on the capabilities of judgment. And the same could be said of testing these hypotheses, beyond merely their framing. Bull presents the reader with a host of questions at the heart of the theoretical discourse on international politics, which cannot be addressed without a basis of judgment, i.e. without sitting within the sphere of the classical approach. For instance, what is the place of war in international society? Or if we can speak of a society of sovereign states, does it presuppose a common culture or civilization? I can even break this down even further to a, a broader political question, and ask the question, well, simply, what is liberty? It's a very difficult question to answer purely by scientific means alone, unless you want to just do a survey. But that will only tell you what people think liberty is, as opposed to telling you, judging what it is. These questions are the stuff of theory of international relations. Nevertheless, the scientific approach has forsworn the means of coming to understand them directly, either shying away from them by engaging exclusively with discourses on the periphery, methodological questions, logical extrapolations of conceptual frameworks, and so on, or just simply breaking free of their self-declared puritanism and just resorting to the classical approach, of which in some cases is exercised really poorly, 
strangers still to the crux of their discipline. I think uh, when Bull talks about this, he doesn't actually give an example of this, but one of the, one of the, and I won't give an example either, because I think that's a bit of a fight to pick. <laughs> but I think that one of the ways that we normally see this is just simply not putting in the work is the same that we would have of a, of a student that would perhaps read Locke for the first time and take a literalist approach of what Locke is saying. For instance, I don't know why I've picked Locke, but let's just take Locke, take Locke as a really good one, as a literalist way, uh, without necessarily doing any of the discourse. In political theory, we like if one is a, a contextualist, one would say that one simply can't understand the basis of theoretical um, uh, approaches or, or, or theoretical grasp without necessarily engaging with the context of the writing. I know that's very Skinnerian in Cambridge School, but for instance, that that's the, the the heavy lifting that one has to go through in order to understand and grasp a particular judgment properly and to form one's own judgment on the back of that as opposed to just simply picking up a book and reading it and quoting it as if one can do anything else actually just to give a really good example of this i shouldn't give a good example i shouldn't give an example of this but to give a good example one of the things i see a lot in populism studies at the moment is the use of rousseau's uh, general will as the volant général um uh, as if one can just simply quote um uh, the general will and place it into a thing and say, oh, this is that, without looking at the very, very broad and very, very technical discussion that Rousseau actually has on the topic of what the general will is, as if the general will can sometimes simply be defined in a single line, 12 words or less, and that's applicable to anything that simply looks like that. And so, yeah, so I think that when there is a, a, a movement away from the scientific approach, by uh, uh, scientific theorists of international relations, it tends to just be a movement towards the classical approach just done really badly without the heavy lifting of interpretivism. Anyway, in teaching the scientific approach as the approach to the theory of international relations, exclusively through game theory, modelling, simulations, systems theory and so on, the student is deprived of contact with the subject, unable to develop a feeling for the play of international politics, or for the moral dilemmas to which it gives rise. Two, where the proponents of the scientific approach do shed light on substance, it is by employing the classical approach. The second proposition is an extension of the first. The value within the work of the scientific approach consists in the judgments that are not established by the mathematical methods employed. The example that Bull gives is that of Thomas Schelling's work on violence and international politics. I actually really like Schelling's work on violence and international politics, I have to say. Despite contributions to the theory of international politics in relations to deterrence, theories of bargaining and so on, Bull makes the claim that Schelling's observations about violence and international politics in every case hold the status of judgments which cannot be proved by the scientific method Schelling himself purports. The originality of Schelling's work stems not from the employment of the scientific approach, but from that of the classical, with an astute judgment and philosophical skill in laying out the problems of international politics in terms of their most rudimentary qualities. Where scientific thinkers truly contribute to the study of international politics, Bull affirms, is through such illustrations of shrewd judgment in their framing of international politics, an activity firmly within the scope of the classical approach. This is actually a point of Bulls that I'm 50-50 on. I think that 
at the time, that probably is the case. When Bull is writing this in the 60s, or when he begins to write this earlier in the 60s, I think this is certainly the case because I think the scientific discipline of international relations is a lot younger. Whereas now, I think there is a whole heap of really brilliant scientific work. I mean, it takes up most of the most of the discipline of IR, but I think there's lots of it which is absolutely phenomenal in itself. And I don't think that's necessarily by employing the classical approach. Of course, in the contemporary world, the classical approach is itself dwindling. Um, but even so, I, 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 this is one that I'm 50-50 on because I think there are cases where you have so-called scientists that slip into bad political theory or bad international political theory or bad classical approach. <laughs> um, uh, but you also have those that do really, really good scientific work, I will say. Um, again, not necessarily naming names, but I think, for instance, some would vehemently disagree with me on this, but I think a lot of like the peace and conflict work that's done today that seems to be fairly scientific, that follows a scientific approach, I think has come on in leaps and bounds since Ken Booth, to be honest. Um, so I don't know, I'm 50-50 on this point. Three, the practitioners of the scientific approach are unlikely to make the make progress of the sort they aspire. Following its modestly faithful beginnings in relation to the paragon of the natural sciences, the hope of the scientific approach is that our knowledge of international relations will reach the point at which it becomes sincerely cumulative. Essentially, the claim contends that from the mire and jumble of competing terminologies and conceptual frameworks, a common language will emerge, or that from the competing analytical structures, a single, dare I say, universal body of firm scientific theory will become apparent, as in the natural sciences upon which newcomers to the enterprise may firmly construct, advance knowledge, and adhere to. So although Bull admits that such an event may indeed happen, the prospects are bleak. This is due to the qualities of the discipline's supposed backward or neglected science, but rather the obstacles of employing the scientific method to the inherent characteristics of international politics. Consider the sheer number of variables that one would require to assess and analyse prior to making even the narrowest generalisation concerning state behaviour, for instance. Or contemplate rather the resistance of the material to controlled experiment, the quality it has of changing before our eyes and slipping between our fingers even as we try to categorise it. A really good example of this, I think, of course this doesn't take place in Bull's lifetime, but is Walt's. Everyone knows a, a particular, a lot of international relations thinkers knows that um, Bull's, uh, Bull, um, Waltz's assertion uh, in um, theory of international politics that the Cold War would continue due to power dynamics and polarity and the balancing of that um, would continue on. And of course, that didn't take place. I think this is a really good example of that, that even the most... I mean, Waltz is a behavioralist, but even the like I, I can hear already hear the sounds of people going, "Ah, oh, he's wrong." <laughs> but no, I always consider Waltz a behavioralist, right? Even though he uses the the scientific method of achieving this, the 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 actual um, object of study changes before our very eyes, right? Because it's human, <laughs> and and so yeah, I think this is what Bull is likely getting at is the these uh, the 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 presentation of a universal body of knowledge doesn't adhere to human things necessarily that is of course of a whole different discussion but a more likely future bull concedes 
is that the theory of international politics will remain indefinitely in a philosophical stage of consistent and constant debate about the fundamentals of the discipline. As part of this, equally, that the new or the works of the new scientific theorists will not provide a solid substructure on which the next generation will build, but rather that those of them that survive at all will take their place alongside earlier works as partial and uncertain guides to an essentially intractable subject. Interestingly, I always think this is a really fun, um, uh, that's a quote, by the way, I always think this is a really fun quote, because I think this is where we see Bull, <laughs> Bull slip into what he what he accuses the scientific approach of doing, um, which is uh, uh, making claims about something that is changing about making chain claims about like or, or concrete claims about something that is shifting and as we found is that in fact the scientific theorists did prove to be a solid substructure on which the next generation would build and that's ultimately led to the 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 withering away of the classical approach which bull does admit at the beginning that is his overall argument four those belonging to the scientific approach have done a great disservice to theory by conceiving of it as the construction and manipulation of so-called models. A model, simply and strictly put, is a deductive framework of axioms and theorems. The impulse to model has become so popular with the onslaught of the scientific approach that it's commonly used to refer to metaphors and analogies, which are thus not models at all. The virtue that it's thought to lie with the scientific modelling is that models liberate us from the constant restraint of reality. By this, I think Bull is implying that through models, the theorist is free to devise simple axioms based on a handful of lone variables and hence confine themselves to a certain deductive logic that supposedly generates wide theoretical insights that are that are to provide broad signposts. And this aids the navigation of our political ventures in reality, whether they thoroughly apply or not. Um, in this frame... After establishing the character of models and modelling, Bull's critique here is that there there isn't really a model which assists our grasp of international politics that could not have been more easily expressed as an empirical generalisation. The model builder is susceptible to a certain dogmatism, um, especially given the discourse around framing in the first part of Bull's rational critiques. By using or by utilizing empirical generalizations as opposed to modeling, self-critique can penetrate the normative assumptions that underpin every single one of the tools we use to navigate political action. The scientific assumption that as the model in question is mathematically sound, it is a mirror of reality and as such representative truth closes thought to a certain dogmatism in the relation between the methods of modeling and uncovering truth. I actually always think that there's a relation here between um, uh, the kind of modelling that we see and a certain will to power, but not necessarily like a like a, a a will to power as a will to dominate, but just a will to be in control, perhaps. And that control isn't real, <laughs> right? Experimentation is not the real world. This is dogmatism that can simply fall into the dark realm of totalizing ideology as in the case of totalitarian pseudoscientific epistemologies, being black holes in which light cannot escape, where self-critique cannot penetrate. The notion that models, by some mystical authority of being so, have a connection to reality even if they do not, 
holds the capability to distort not only its own competence as model, but also our wider grasp of political realities with its regurgitation and popularity. It's in order to illustrate this, Bull uses the six systems of Morton Kaplan. He really, really has it in for Morton Kaplan in this article uh, as his example, asserting that uh, Kaplan's taxonomy is not a closed system, no matter how much it pretends to be, as there are other systems not disclosed by Kaplan's model, not providing the kind of illumination and rigor assumed by the virtue of creating a limited model. Simply put, in Bull's own words, quote, the fashion for constructing models exemplifies a much wider and more long-standing trend in the study of social affairs, the substitution of methodological tools, and the question, are they useful or not, for the avowal of propositions about the world and the question, are they true or not, end quote. This substitution has been for the worse, uh, with the utility of the tools used to interpret phenomena now being translated as the truth behind any proposition about said phenomena, with the effect being that the substitution paves the way for slipshod thinking and the subordination of inquiry to practical utility. Bull whistleblows on the scientific approach out of the fear that beneath its surface there is a tendency to replace inquiry with practical utility that this perhaps undermines something integral to the process of going about and examined life as a whole. I actually think that's one of the kind of quiet subterranean connections uh, between the use of the phrase classical approach and classical theory is this focus on, you know, a life being worth lived if it is examined. Five, the work of the scientific school is distorted by a fetish for measurement. I will admit immediately I completely agree with this critique. Although Bull investigates this critique in some detail, it is self-explanatory in many ways. As the scientific approach sits on a foundation of method, the approach's attitude towards the phenomena of international politics has become corrosive in its rigid puritanical devotion to measurement. There is nothing inherently objectionable to a form of international politics that seeks theoretical explanation in a mathematical form, nor measuring phenomena that can be measured to support or evidence some conclusion. Nonetheless, the scientific approach becomes corrosive of the central questions to international politics and political theory generally, when it becomes scientistic. This implies that as the scientific approach affirms that a claim is irrefutable when measured, that which cannot be measured is immediately refutable to the extent that it is of little or no value for the theorist. Bull uses the example of the manner in which Karl Deutsch and Bruce Russett's work illustrate how the scientific approach's measurement mania distracts them from a fruitful discussion of international relations. But over 50 years since the publication of Bull's article, coming on 60, the scientific approach has begun to fully display a semblance of the scientism Bull exposes. One could discuss the newfound importance of t-test scores, standard deviations, survey-based metrics widely in use to measure freedom in the world, for example, not pointing fingers at anybody, <laughs> and so on.
Conversely, I'd like to give a personal illustration of this in my own experience, if I may. As an undergraduate, and there'll be no names here, as an undergraduate, I recall attending a seminar as part of a wider research module. This seminar concerned the methods of political theory. Although only four or five of us attended out of almost a hundred students taking the module, the discussion was to explain and expand on those approaches to research that sat within what Ball would term as the classical approach. As the convener um, uh, uh, of the module was a data scientist, it was interesting to see their response to the discussion that was being led by several political theorists for the hour. At the 45 minute mark, or 40 minute mark, during a discussion about hermeneutics actually, the convener chose to step in and testify, but in what way does any of this contribute to knowledge? Interpretation can be measured, and as such is of no use to anybody. We shouldn't be promoting these kinds of values to students. The ensuing debate, nay argument, that followed between the academic staff is like tattooed on my brain, tattooed in my memory, as epitomal of the very debate that Bull's article surveys and contributes to, whilst uniquely displaying the dangers he isolates in his fifth critique. Namely, that a fetish for measurement is not intrinsically fruitful, but potentially corrosive, by arguing that things are only valuable if they can be measured, or can only contribute to knowledge through measurement, we end up with a lack of methodological pluralism, and we end up excluding more than we include. And that means that certain kinds of judgments, certain kinds of knowledge are lost. There is a need for rigour and precision in the theory of international politics, but the sort of rigour and precision the subject admits can be accommodated readily enough within the classical approach. This is point six. In his sixth critique, Bull isolates a certain praise for the scientific approach. Through some of its criticism of the classical approach, the scientific framework reveals that the classical approach is at points marked by failures in defining terms, turning implicit assumptions into explicit ones, the ability to observe canons of logical philosophy or even supported unfalsifiable teleological philosophies of history at their most absurd and unscientific totalities. Undoubtedly Bull emphasises the theory of international relations ought to attempt to be scientific by virtue of its being coherent, precise, an orderly body of knowledge and even in this sense being consistent with the philosophical foundations of modernity and the quote science this encompasses. Subsequently, in so far as the scientific approach is a protest against slipshod thinking and dogmatism or against residual providentialism, there is everything to be said for it. Here is one of the few points in the essays in the essay, sorry, in the article, we see Bull grant credit where credit is due to the scientific approach. However, in the next breath, Bull asserts that this would be an unsatisfactory and rather untruthful characterization of the entire classical, classical approach as slipshod thinking and dogmatism. Indeed, much thinking that forms the body of the classical approach is not open to such an objection, 
where rigorous and logical critique triumph in expelling any impulse to the kind of thinking that the scientific approach protests against, and holds the capacity to do this with the ability to judge, interpret, and understand the nuanced subtleties of international politics. I know I am biased because I, I, I really do like the work of Martin White, but I always think Martin White's a really good example of this. Unless we talk about his personal Christianity, uh, which does sometimes like seep into his work, especially in his younger work, or in his work when he was younger. Um, I wouldn't say he's politically dogmatic in any respect whatsoever. Not all classical approach thinkers are dogmatic. Not all are... are um, uh, exceptionally right-wing or exceptionally or dogmatically Marxist, for instance, of a way that even Marx would have more than likely detested. So yeah, so I think it's a pretty broad characterization of the classical approach to assume that just because something isn't measured or following a more a, a science based on the natural sciences, that it's simple dogmatism. So illustrations of these thinkers are somewhat limited in Ball's time, naturally with international relations theory being a young discipline. So he cites the work of, work of um, uh, Oppenheim, Aron, Hoffman, Waltz or White. But today the list would be one of enormity as time has trundled on. Ball similarly goes on to state that it's not difficult to find cases where scientific thinkers have lacked rigorous self-critique either, and as such would be fallacious to associate such a standard exclusively with the classical approach in the first instance. Last point, seven. The scientists, by cutting themselves off from history and philosophy, have deprived themselves of the means of self-criticism and thus have a perception of their subject and its callow and impetuous. Interestingly, before unpacking his final rational critique of the scientific approach. Ball makes it clear that this is not the case for all thinkers of the scientific approach. Nonetheless, his intent is to present the manner in which their thinking is characterised. In Ball's typical passionate style of exhaustingly clause-ridden sentences, <laughs> here no explanation or reinterpretation is needed for his clear elaboration of the seventh critique, and I'm going to quote it in full. And if you listen carefully, you can still hear the ardent clatter of his typewriter. <laughs> Quote, But their thinking is certainly characterised by a lack of any sense of inquiry into international politics as a continuing tradition to which they are the latest recruits, by an insensitivity to the conditions of recent history that have produced them, provided them with the preoccupations and perspectives they have, and coloured these in ways of which they might not be aware, by an absence of any disposition to wonder why, if the fruits their researchers promise are so great, and the prospects of translating them into action are so favourable, this has not been accomplished by anyone before, by an uncritical attitude towards their own assumptions, and especially towards the moral and political attitudes that have a central but unacknowledged position in much of what they say. End quote. That's a one sentence, by the way. <laughs> Which is how you can hear, as I said, that's how you can hear the typewriter going. Going on to reveal that one illustration um, of the scientific approach's lack of self-critique is its inability to observe the uniquely American values and assumptions onto which it constructs itself. 
Quote, there is little doubt that the conception of a science of international politics, like that of a science of politics generally, has taken root and flourished in the United States because of attitudes towards the practice of international affairs that are especially American. Assumptions in particular about the moral simplicity of problems of foreign policy, the existence of solutions to these problems, the, recepti the receptivity of policymakers to the fruits of research and the degree of control and manipulation that can be exerted over the whole diplomatic field by any one country. End quote. Okay, so having stated his case against a scientific approach, Paul returns to the trio of qualifications he introduces in the first section. Conscious of having made a, quote, shotgun attack upon a whole flock of assorted approaches, end quote, he concedes that there are in fact more approaches to the study of international politics than the simple two he has laid out here, but that nevertheless the dichotomy he examines does indeed obscure a number of other distinctions that are just as significant to bear in mind. Without a doubt, he claims, the barriers between academics of these approaches need to be interrogated. Barriers that are constituted of misunderstanding, lack of firm grasp and academic prejudice that can bisect or bifurcate the whole field of social studies. Subsequently, Bull makes the assertion that a certain eclecticism masquerading as tolerance is the greatest danger of all. If all approaches are awarded hospitality in the academy, there will be no end to the absurdities thrust upon us, he says, as there are always grains of truth in even the ramblings of those individuals that proselytise at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. This does not mean that they should be awarded a firm place in the academic hierarchy. Although perhaps in this sort of penultimate statement of the paper, Bull displays a certain gatekeeper's puritanism himself, one that he had only pages earlier associated with the scientific approach. In the final lines of his article, Bull makes it clear that he finds a good deal of merit in a number of the contributions to the discipline of international relations that the scientific approach has offered. His argument, interpretively, is not that the approach as a whole is of no value. This would be a complete misunderstanding of Bull's rational critique. He is not suggesting that the scientific approach should be thrown out, right? I think for him this would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Rather, his argument is that the contributions of the scientific approach can be more readily accommodated by the classical approach, i.e. through judgment and interpretation. An overemphasis on measurement, measurement and rigidified methodology as the single royal road to truth can be corrosive. And to the cause for us all to travel this path, as Ball poetically states, quote, we should remain resolutely deaf, end quote, and ensure a sense of methodological pluralism in the Academy of International Relations Theory. So you've been listening to me, Kieran O'Meara, on the Pollock Podcast, talking about Headley Bull's brilliant article, International Theory, The Case for a Classical Approach. 
Thank you for joining me on this special on English School Diaries. Look forward to be doing a lot more of them. And if you haven't already done so, click in the link to go to the website where you'll be able to find the article that all of this came from. And alongside that, there should be a link to Headley Ball's original article. Go check out Pollet on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on TikTok, on Instagram, and of course, YouTube. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. And remember, when you're in the mood for a think, think Pollet at www.thinkpollet.com. See you soon, guys. <laughs>